Good morning. Few visitors today. I was just staying in the room to see if I was like, oh, everyone knows where we're at. We're in Genesis. Uh, that's our current series. We'll be in Genesis 5 today. Um, I do. I know you didn't come for me and you came to worship the Lord. I do appreciate you coming. This, uh, in my first church I ever preached in and became a pastor of in Kentucky, uh, when we went through our winter vortex like now, there was a time only three people showed up to church. Three. Well, including me. So four total. So this is a mega church in comparison to that. So uh, there we go. And I told him, I was like, I prepared a sermon. I'm preaching it. So that's, uh, grab your hymnals, turn the page, whatever. Uh, and we worshiped. All right. Genesis 5, I think 1 through 31, we're just shy of one verse. Is this it? <coughs> Genesis 5. I'm going to read the entire chapter, bar that one verse, to get started. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Canaan. Enosh lived after he fathered Canaan 815 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years. And he died. When Canaan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Canaan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Canaan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years. He wins, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying... Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toll of our hands. 
Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. Uh, Heavenly Father, and God, we, uh, there, there's a lot going on in this, in this text that, uh, that, that needs unpacked, Lord, um, and even such a, uh, a family tree so far back in iniquity, Lord, uh, that seems like it, like it doesn't matter and what relevance does it have in our life today, and, and it has the, the most relevance and the most significant thing for us today within this text, Lord, in the anticipation of what will come one day, who will give us rest, who will relieve us from the curse of the ground and the curse of sin and death, Lord, and the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and when he returns, the presence of sin, God. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would help uh, reveal Christ to us this morning uh, through the chapter that uh, has concealed him, yet uh, foreshadows him. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. If you picked up on it, and he died, and he died, and then he died, on repeat. And one of my friends uh, did his residency in the terminal ward in Atlanta Hospital. He told me that he had to watch multiple patients die every day. I asked how his heart was handling that. It was, it was a Christian brother, and uh, I figured I know it would be hard for me, so it was probably affecting him greatly to see people die every day as well. He told me he was, he was actually doing okay, but what had made an impact on him the most was how unnatural death is. Unnatural, he said. He said it was, their, it was their physical appearance that made such an impression, that revealed that, that showed how unnatural death truly was. If you've ever been by a loved one with a loved one who was terminal, you know exactly what he's talking about because they, they, don't, they don't look like themselves any longer physically. Typically, they don't. That man or woman in their youth full of vigor and strength and who they once were, they, they're, they're, they're frail. I remember seeing my, my grandmother shortly before she passed. And the first time I went in to see her, when I walked into the room in the hospice, I mean, I could barely even recognize it was her. I wasn't even certain that it was and I won't go into further detail about that, but I'm sure most of you have experienced the same thing. The point that I'm trying to make is that, that my friend, he, he was correct. Death is unnatural. It wasn't meant to be this way. And yet, as we all face our course in life, our, what we're destined to, we know that well, death may be unnatural, it is inevitable for every single one of us. The first point is plan for eternity. And being that death is inevitable, before we get to that point, we'll just propose the question, is your soul prepared 
for eternity? That's, that's the most important question you're ever going to answer. Not what, we're taking, not what you're taking with you as a reward into eternity. It's are you walking into eternity holding on to the hand of Jesus Christ? Because you won't get in without him being the entrance. Do you know that your eternity is secure? Not by your good works, not by your effort, but your eternity is secure because you have placed your soul into the care of Christ who has told you, if you believe in me, you can come in. Everything we take into eternity past that is just bonus. Plan for eternity. Thus all the days Adam lived were 930 years and he died. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. Thus all the days of Enos were 905 years and he died. Thus all the days of Canaan were 910 years and he died. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years and he died. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. Methuselah, 969 years and he died. Genesis 5 is a reminder the death is a consequence of sin, physical and spiritually. I think that's why Moses writes this genealogy the way that he does. We're supposed to be reminded. We're supposed to understand that, that the death of all these patriarchs, these original patriarchs, is the consequence that followed the fall in the Garden of Eden. What were they told? eat from the tree, and die. And we just read, one man had a son and then he died. Then another man had a son and he died. Then another man had a son and he died. And so on and so on and so on. <laughs> so much, it jumps out so much at you that the more I thought about this the past week, the, 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 the less I began thinking that this was a genealogy and the more I started to think this was actually an obituary. I don't, I don't mean to be all doom and gloom or start this off in, in that manner because I actually think there's something wise and good about us reflecting on our own immortality and the certainty of death. In Ecclesiastes 7.2, nope, there we go. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind. And the living will lay it to heart. It's better to go into the house of mourning instead of a house of feasting. Why? <laughs> Why? Why does Solomon say that? It reminds us, his point is that it reminds us, a house of mourning reminds us that every single one of us has an expiration date. It forces us to contemplate, but what's next? Even if we don't go into a house of mourning from time to time, we still return to the thought of our own immortality because, and, and what's coming after that because the same writer says in Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has set eternity on the hearts of men. He's placed 
eternity inside of our hearts, which means every single one of us has some type of keen awareness that death is not our final curtain call. It may be inevitable, but it is not the end. I mean, if it were, what in the world are we all doing here? It's the point of it all. You may or may not be familiar with the song, uh, There Must Be More to Life Than This by Freddie Mercury, who was a lead singer of Queen. In 1985, he wrote uh, that song, There Must Be More to Life Than This. It says, in it, he says, what good is life when in the end... We all must die. There must be more to life than this. I think Freddie was well aware in his heart. This can't be it. There's, there's got to be more. He was right. He's absolutely correct. He sensed it. It was in his heart. Of course, I don't know that he ever understood what to truly do about it, which is, when you think about the reality of eternity, you can't help but think of the hopelessness of atheists, the utter despair that I, I would be in if I were an atheist, if I truly believed there were no God, and if I believed that there were no life after death. Just in the end, we simply cease to exist. We're born, we grow up, and then we work our entire lives until we can retire, at which point most of our bodies are in so much pain we can barely even enjoy retirement. And then finally, on that blessed day, our final hour comes, and we go black for eternity. Game over. That's it. Thanks for playing. It's a miserable outlook. Miserable outlook. It has more implications than just that, than than just despair. Because if, if it's true, nothing in this life actually matters. And that includes our moral behavior. After all, right, if, if there's no God, then there can be no justice in the universe once this entire ship stops, once this whole thing is over, which means all the injustices ever committed will simply remain in the balance and no debts will ever be paid. And for that matter, if, if we are all just a lump of particles or molecules formed by an explosion without any divine architect, and there isn't even a moral compass by which humanity should live by or could live by. Who makes the rules? There'd be no standard of law. Without any objective truth regarding morality, there's no way to determine what's good and what's evil. So therefore, just 
Life is generation after generation just wandering this earth aimlessly, continuing to fall further into anarchy. But who cares? Because if we're all going to die anyway without any divine accountability, then we might as well just do whatever we want. Now, Paul says that, doesn't he? He says, if we're wrong, we're the fools, right? We're the ones to be pitied. (laughs) If Christ didn't rise from the dead, then eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, then neither will we. But he did. So we arrive at our first bit of application, because this isn't it. Christ did rise from the dead, and death isn't the end. So we must plan for eternity. And one of the one of the saddest things, discouraging to the heart, is when someone is suffering internally so much, with so much pain, so much anxiety, so much stress, the weight of this world and burdens that they. They decided to take their own life. I, I had a friend from high school do that uh, about a week and a half ago. And what's sad about it well, isn't the fact that they just, she took her own life. What's sad about it is she thinks it's over. This will be the end. This will be the end of my pain. This will be the end of my anxiety. This will be the end of all the demons and burdens and everything that I've carried for this long. This will be the end. And now she's woken up into eternity to find out It's not. It's not the end. I want to say this in a tactful way. But if the status of unbelievers being eternally separated from God doesn't give you some bit of motivation to proclaim to them that Jesus rose from the dead, died for sins, and to call them to repent and believe, I have to wonder if you actually believe it yourself. Again, I'm trying to use tact with that. Plan for eternity. I'm going, to, I'm going to switch gears here. The other night I was listening to the Dave Ramsey show on my way home, and, and a couple, you know, called in and talked to him, and they just, if you ever listen to the Dave Ramsey show, he's a, you know, financial guy that tells people how they're doing it wrong, do it this way, and their finances will be better. So this couple just paid off their mortgage, they're 100% debt-free, and that's great. That's great. That's a, that is a good goal. And, you know, they should be proud of that. And then, you know, they, they like ring the bells. Everyone's clapping. They celebrate. They yell they're debt free. The husband and wife are cheering. They're all cheering. And then they ask, the husband asks, what's next? As in, what now? You could hear, you could almost hear this discontentment or despair in his voice. Well, now what? Because their goal was accomplished, right? And this guy didn't have a clue what he was supposed to do with the rest of his life. He, his entire life was built around being debt-free. 
And then once it happened, once they achieved their goal, he was lost in limbo. He had no idea what to do with himself. Would have been a great opportunity for the radio station to, yeah, after the guy says, what now? Now what? You know? For them to say, that's a great question. Now it would be a good time to focus your family's wealth on investments that are going to follow you into eternity. Because your home, your cars, your, your wealth, your possessions, they're all going to be burned up in the end. And, and, and I would have said to him, and as you've just figured out, sir, no matter how many possessions you attain, um, how many goals you hit, you've just realized they don't satisfy, do they? Like you just hit this, tr- you just paid off your mortgage and you're sad about it because you don't know what to do next. It, that hit me. Rearranged my focus and... But they didn't say that. And instead, <laughs> instead they said, now you should focus on the interior part of your home. In other words, the, the, the couple was told to use their resources and time on making renovations inside of the home they just paid off. And don't get me wrong, those things aren't sinful. Renovations aren't sinful. Buying a house isn't sinful. Cars are not sinful. All of those can actually be used to the glory of God and used to, for it, earthly possessions can be used to gain eternal reward. I won't say specific names because I don't know if they want me to. I, I can just think of a family just wanting to move into their house so they can invite people over for fellowship and, and, and growing in Christ, loving one another in Christ. And, 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 and I know other people that are already doing that with their home and want to do that. That is using your earthly possessions to the glory of God for eternal reward. Now, you don't see that in a bank account like you do, you know, actual monies that we put in, but it's there. This guy, it, he wasn't just asking what, you know, you could say, well, maybe he was just asking what should they invest their money in. No, no, the, the desperation, you could hear it in his voice. You can tell when he says, now what? The only advice that they could offer this guy was put in some hardwood floors and expand your dining area. That's it. Build more, get more, 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 more. For what? A home you're going to have to sell in 20 years when property taxes get so high you can't even afford to live there any longer. That type of mindset is why millions of Americans have achieved the American dream only to wake up one day and ask themselves, is this it? Is this really all that there is? John Piper, I think he correctly critiqued us as a people when he said, America is the first culture in jeopardy of amusing itself to death. So how do we plan for eternity? Well, first, I think our perspective 
We must make the decision which kingdom we're going to live for. Hebrews 11, 24 through 26. Bless you. By f- Sorry. Hebrews 11, 24. By faith, when Moses was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Why? Why? <laughs> Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than, in, than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater, the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Why? Because he was looking toward the reward. Moses left all the wealth a man could ever desire possession, position. And he left it for what? People that didn't like him. And so he could wander around the, the desert for 40 years. And his promise was only Canaan. Our promise is glory. But just like Moses, you, you've got to make that decision for yourself. Do you want to enter into glory in the new heavens and the new earth, or do you want to go back to Egypt and be slaves again? Now may I suggest fleeing from Egypt. Flee from Egypt and run toward your reward in Christ because it is there. Matthew 6. Don't store up for yourself. This is Jesus. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Where moths and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. Instead, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We read in 1 Thessalonians in our house, and Paul says to them, their eternal reward is the Thessalonians. That he's saying, I'm taking you with me. We preach the gospel. You believed it was the word of God, not just the word of man, the word of God as it truly is. You guys are being faithful. The whole world has heard of your faithfulness, and, and my reward in heaven is you. You're coming with me because you're coming in Christ. You're my reward. The reason, that's the reason that the angels rejoice and heaven rejoices when one sinner repents. Because a soul is saved from condemnation, from separation from God. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Invest your time and wealth. Here's the practical application. Invest your time and wealth into God's kingdom. Take time to examine your priorities and figure out what percentage your life is committed to earthly possessions and what percentage of your life is, is, is going toward heavenly treasure. Ask yourself, how am I investing into heaven individually in my own personal life? How am I investing into heaven with my family How am I investing heaven into heaven in my community that I live in? How am I investing into heaven with my church? Those are four specific areas that will carry with you 
into eternity. If you choose to invest your time, your wealth, your heart in, into your own walk with the Lord, your, your family, the community you live in, and the church you worship with and belong to. It's good. It's a good practice to realign our priorities. It's good practice to see, am I, how, how earthly focused am I? Am I heavenly focused at all? It's easy. It's, we have to realign. It's too easy to get distracted. And, and, and therefore, we should make it a habit of taking stock on our own life. And think about your car. It doesn't run for its entire life cycle without ever having to be realigned, right? That's something that has to happen over time, over and over and over again, because eventually it's going to become unbalanced and need of adjusting. The same is true for us. It's easy for us to become unbalanced and in need of adjusting. It's a plan for eternity. Invest into eternity. Yourself, your family, your community, and your church. Point two, walk with the Lord by faith. Each point gets shorter. <laughs> okay. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Enoch is one of the only two men in history, in the history of the Bible, that didn't taste physical death. He didn't die physically. The other is the prophet Elijah. The only explanation as to why God took Enoch here in Genesis is because Enoch walked with God. I don't, I don't think that means that others did not have an intimate relationship with him because the end of Genesis 4 said, once Seth was born, the people began to call on the name of the Lord or to, they began to worship the Lord, another translation. But there's something unique about Enoch and God's relationship that sets it apart from all the others. And I, and it, <laughs> I don't What's near and dear to me about this passage is that in a culture absolutely intoxicated by itself, absolutely intoxicated by possessions and achievements, the author here, Moses, he doesn't attribute any of those types of things to Enoch's removal. or success, whatever, I don't even know what you want to call it. He simply describes Enoch's greatness as nothing more than he walked with God. Apparently, Enoch's walk with the Lord was strong. It's rare that we see Christian men and women praised for their faithfulness. Usually, Christians are commended by the same standards of society. We get infatuated by what they've accomplished or what the size of their church is. Maybe if they have a building, right? how knowledgeable they are, how many followers they have on Twitter. But here in Genesis 5, Moses doesn't care about how much Enoch knows, who his followers are. The Bible doesn't care if you like Enoch's Facebook status or not. We don't get a detailed report about his ministerial resume, all the churches he's planted or... You know, how many books he's written, 
How many conferences he's speaking at for the year? Enoch is known for one thing, and that's his relationship with the Lord. That's a legacy. Now, the author of Hebrews indicates the strength of Enoch's walk with the Lord was done by faith. So the strength of his, of his walk is it's his faith. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Mom, where's dad? God took him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God... And then it says, in verse, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, but also that God rewards those who seek him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Well, that implies that God is not impressed by our own accomplishments. It also implies he's not expecting us to walk through this life alone. But to do it on our own. God expects us to rely on him, to walk with him, to look to him and his word for guidance. That is faith. We see it. Faith is not only believing there is a God. Faith is believing what God has said is true. And we're rewarded with life for seeking him. Enoch was rewarded with life for seeking him. We're rewarded for life with life for seeking him. So application, walk with the Lord by faith. It's funny that 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 same phrase in Genesis 5 to describe Enoch and God's relationship is is we, we still use that today. How's your walk with the Lord? We might be referring to a numerous amount of things, but typically they're probing questions such as how is your relationship with God? Are you spending time with God and God, God and His Word? And are you spending time with God in prayer? Is there any sin you're battling with right now? Do you have joy in Christ at the moment? How's your walk? How's your walk with the Lord? I'm proposing that question to you. How is your walk with the Lord right now? Are you moving along? Or are you stagnant? I'll put it another way. Are you, are you seeking Him by reading the Scriptures for guidance, for clarity, and for direction? How else can we walk with the Lord if we don't know the way? I have to say one thing about Enoch's relationship with the Lord. And which same for ours. God didn't accept Enoch on the basis of good works. Nor did God accept Enoch on the basis of his faithfulness. Nor will he accept us on the basis of our good works or on the basis of our faithfulness or our effort. 
So in other words, if I say, how's your walk? And you say, my walk is good. My walk is like Enoch's with the Lord right now. You're not saved because you have a great walk with Enoch, like Enoch. Bible says Enoch was accepted on the basis of what? His faith, not his faithfulness. Remember, even though Enoch was considered a faithful man, we consider him that. He was still born of Adam with a sinful nature. Which means Enoch's still a sinner, right? There's only one sinless man who ever lived, and it ain't Enoch. It's Jesus. So the application is not be like Enoch and God will accept you. No, he won't. And for that matter, think about this. The application isn't even be like Jesus and God will accept you. At least in relation to the reality, God won't accept you because you're attempting to be like his son. Does everyone here realize that? People who try their hardest, Matthew 7, to be like Jesus will be rejected by Jesus. Even those who labor, Matthew 7, in Jesus' name will be rejected on the last day. But didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Get away from me, you evildoer, for I never knew you. And the reason is because Jesus doesn't accept us on the basis of our effort. And instead, he pleads for us on the basis of his. And is it upon, it's upon his intercession for us, his pleading for us, going as a priest before God for us, that God accepts us. It's through Christ's intercession that God accepts us, not by anything we do, by Jesus standing before God. Christ is our mediation between God and man. They're righteous on my account, not their own. Father, you chose them. I redeemed them. They're mine. And, and I think we see that. We see that in Genesis. We see that here. Lamech's prayer, prophecy regarding Noah. Because he, even though Enoch was taken, we see that he wasn't taken on the basis of his righteousness because the, the curse was not lifted. Enoch may have been lifted, but the curse wasn't. It still remained, and humanity was still in need of someone who could redeem it from its curse. Someone who could provide rest. They find your rest in Christ, the final point. Seek Christ for rest. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered his son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground the Lord is cursed. Out of the ground the Lord is cursed. This one shall bring rest from our work and from the painful toll of our hands. This is one of my favorite passages in the entire Old Testament. Because Lamech's prayer prophecy about Noah shows that the people of God had been waiting to be redeemed even from the very beginning. They had been expecting someone for thousands of years who was going to lift the curse that happened in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned and God said, cursed is the ground. 
It's there. <laughs> I don't got to read into it. He says it. This one, this one shall bring us rest from this painful toll that the Lord has cursed. And thousands of years have passed since the fall at this point. We read, we read the genealogy or the obituary, whatever you want to call it. It's passed. And here we have Noah's dad saying, is this the one? Will this be the one? Will this be the one who who relieves us, who gives us rest, the painful toll we've been laboring over? And when we proceed into the story of Noah in a few weeks, we'll, we'll see that Lamech hopes for his son Noah to be the redeemer to give them relief. It, it is correct, at least, at least partially. As we'll see that Noah was meant to be a second Adam. He was chosen by God to succeed where Adam failed. And therefore, God preserved Noah and his family through the flood so that they would live in this new creation after the flood under the same covenantal blessings that God gave Adam and Eve, which were be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, have dominion over it. Those same commands he gave to Adam, now he gives to Noah after the flood. We'll get deeper into that next week, so just sorry if... Let's not go there right now. Noah's rule was to be the obedient son of God, which Adam failed to be. Unfortunately, Noah also failed to be a faithful son. We'll see that in the garden. Second garden. In the vineyard, rather. And therefore, the world still in need of someone who could provide us with rest. Because Noah couldn't provide it. David couldn't provide it. Moses, Israel, Solomon. None. And then finally, the one who will give us rest appears in the Gospels. And he says, Matthew 11, 28, 29, come to me. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. <laughs> that rest that Noah wasn't able to provide, I will give you rest. And it's going to be better than, than Lamech ever could have imagined. Take my yoke upon me, Jesus says. Learn from me, for I am lowly, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Let's just pause for a second. Do you realize your Savior, your God and Creator is gentle and humble in heart? We don't have a prideful God. We don't have an arrogant God. We don't, we don't have someone who just shoves sin in our face and tells us, I told you not to do it. I told you not to do it. We have a gentle and lowly God who comes down from heaven, leaves his throne in order to die for our sin. That's the type of God that we have. I'm gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My friend who, if you've ever known anyone to take their own life, my friend from high school who took their life, they, 
their soul. They wanted rest. They wanted it. They were seeking it, and they thought taking their own life would provide it. It doesn't. Possessions doesn't provide it. Wealth doesn't provide it. Sin, it doesn't provide it. There's only one who can give our souls rest. It's Jesus. Whether or not Matthew is making a connection between Lament's comment in Genesis 5 and Jesus' words here in chapter 11, I don't know, but I think so. And whether or not it's a direct connection or not doesn't matter to me because the truth still remains. Jesus is the one who is able to provide the rest that Lamech hoped for and hoped that Noah would give. And it's greater. It's greater than Lamech ever realized. Because Jesus doesn't just give us rest from our painful toll, our painful labor, the rest for our souls that we get. It means, it means the Lord who calms the seas of Galilee is able to calm the storms within us as well, that turmoil that it's, 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 it's hard to articulate what it even feels like, that an, an anxious soul that never gets rest, always scheming, always wondering, always panicking. Jesus calms. And in relation to today's passage, considering death and in relation to eternity, Jesus gives our souls rest by redeeming them. He redeems our souls. How? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Now that's not the curse of the ground that Lamech was talking about. It's a curse from Deuteronomy. And nevertheless, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. But we, the, the penalty... Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree and Christ left his throne in heaven to come down and hang on a tree for every one of us. If you believe, let us pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, God, I pray that, that none of us would, no one here would take the curse upon themselves that they would go into eternity without considering that the curse follows with, but it doesn't have to. It can stop at, at the door frame of Christ. Our Passover lamb who, 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 who covers us with his blood and, and the wrath of God will not touch because we are considered righteous not by what we do, but by our faith in what he has done. And our souls are secure. God, I, I pray for those who are, have anxious hearts, who, who, who are Christians this morning, Lord, but, but still have not had rest 
in their hearts, in their souls for, for days or weeks or months because of life circumstances. I pray they would come to the foot of Christ today, Lord, and trust. God, you said you will give me rest. I need rest, Lord. I need you to calm the storms of my heart. And God, that you would be faithful to your word for every, every answer in Christ is yes. Lord, we ask that you would provide that today. In Jesus' name, amen.